today's webinar on Enterprise Challenges of Test Data Management. I'm Rex Black, president of RBCS. We are a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants that deliver deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of 14 books on software testing, as well as being the past president of the ISTQB. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. I would like to thank Morali Gathula for reviewing the materials for PDU status and for making valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendees only. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, please do feel free to submit them at any time via your webinar interface, but please note that I answer them only at the end. Hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not-just-for-profit company. If you enjoy our free webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you face, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. We're happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need. Contact us at info at rbcs-us.com. Now on with the show. So, test data and test data management. How hard could it be? Well, for a lot of companies around the world, it's a big challenge. Uh, now, if you have simple applications, you may be thinking, really, I mean, how hard can it be? Uh, and maybe for you, it's not particularly hard. Uh, but if you're testing enterprise-scale applications, the kinds of things that run in data centers and manage you know, terabytes and terabytes of data and uh, interact with other applications and uh, have shared data stores potentially, et cetera, this can be quite challenging. Um, for a number of our clients that have data centers that they're dealing with, they have hundreds of applications potentially in those data centers, and they not only coexist, but they interact. Some of these applications can be huge and mission critical, some of them can be small and mission critical. Some of them can be medium size and trivial or any mix of all of those uh, variables there. And the complexity also varies quite a bit. And uh, this includes the complexity of the data. And of course, you know, it's data, 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 right? And uh, you're got big data and so forth and doing data analytics. And of course, this means that this is all the more critical that uh, we know that uh, the, the um, various data that's being stored in the various data repositories um, is being stored properly. And when there are relationships between data that span multiple repositories, in other words, like in two or more different databases, that um, we go to run reports that are going to span those databases that we'll be able to get the right data out. So how do we know when we're testing that our test data is actually going to um, allow us to to get a realistic view of the system's behavior in a production environment. Now, let me tell you a, a cautionary tale here. Uh, if any of you are kind of tempted to think, well, yeah, this is probably a good idea, but, you know, I mean, uh, 
maybe we can get away with something a little less. Uh, I worked as an expert witness in 2017 on a lawsuit. And um, while I can't divulge any of the details of that lawsuit, I can tell you that one of the reasons that the company that uh, the law firm that I was working with was suing, one of the reasons that they were sued uh, was because they failed to catch a defect. Uh, and the reason they failed to catch that defect before they put it in production and it caused massive failures was because, in part, they didn't use representative test data. They redacted data that was personally identifying out of their database rather than properly anonymizing it. And what ended up happening was that the failure that um, uh, would have been quite easy to spot had they used just basic test design techniques and thrown the right data at it, failure uh, occurred in production and affected millions of people. And ultimately, that company lost millions of dollars when the judgment uh, went against them. So, um, yes, this can be quite, quite a serious thing. So test data, where does test data come from? Well, sorry, a sip of water there. Um, we can generate it with a tool, we can generate it by hand, or we can use production data. Uh, this can be all of the data, it can be some of the data, uh, it could be the data without any changes, which could be a problem, which we'll talk about. Uh, it could be the data um, properly anonymized so that no personal identifying information is available. Um, and it can also be what's called pseudo-anonymized, which is uh, anonymized but in uh, not a complete fashion. So we'll talk about all these different options. And um, one thing that you will often do is, is use some sort of mix uh, of these options uh, to uh, create your test data and to manage it. Now, this generally is going to involve tools. And by tools, I, need, I mean something more sophisticated than Excel. Yes, you can, you, Excel may be involved in using random number generators and so forth. You can do some interesting things with Excel uh, to generate data, which you then save as a comma-separated variable file and load up into your tables. Uh, but you're probably going to need something more sophisticated um, than that. So we'll look at some different options here. Now, one of the things that uh, um, I want to stress as we get into this is that if you are going to test on actual production data in the production environment, you have to be really, really careful of that because if what your tests do is result in changes to the data, well, that might not be what you want. Um, and it might not be possible to easily reverse those changes. Um, similarly, you have to be very careful that if you're, that if you're pulling production data into your test environment to use for testing that you don't accidentally push test data into the production environment. Uh, my favorite anecdote about this was uh, some people at a utility in the UK were testing a, a mail merge uh, feature that we're going to use to send out a mass mailing to their clients. And they um, somehow or another, the, the test message made its way into production, was actually mailed out to the clients, which is bad enough, but it was made worse by the fact that the 
salutation of the letter was dear idiots and then the entire body of the letter just consisted of a bunch of gibberish uh fortunately they they were fortunate and they did not put any uh uh profanity or anything that anything worse than but you know opening a, a letter and, and having it address you as dear idiot uh not not exactly the um uh, a good look okay so <clears throat> If any of you are testing simple mobile apps, again, you may just say, well, you know, I don't really have a problem. Of course, if you're testing simple mobile apps, I can't imagine you would have signed up for this webinar because it talks about enterprise data challenges. But uh, um, if you are in a situation where you're, where you're uh, testing a, a simple mobile app, and if the production data that's out there is, is small enough, um, then you may be able to hand generate the data or just use the production data directly if there's no personal identifying information in it. Um, so this might be the situation that you're in, and if so, you know, good for you. Take advantage of the uh, fact that uh, uh, your data test data situation will be fairly straightforward. I need to get another drink of water there. Sorry about that. <clears throat> um, but even if you are in this situation, I would say consider the fact that you won't necessarily stay in that situation. You, the application's abilities may grow. Uh, other applications may be added. And your test data management challenges may evolve. Um, so... Um, it's it's smart to think about these things in advance rather than being surprised by them later. So here's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about enterprise type of uh, data. It's you know like this. You've got uh, stuff, data sources come out in the the wide world. Their retail locations potentially salespeople using um, uh, some kind of internal mobile app like one of our clients does or uh, somebody working out in an oil field using a mobile app or people who are working from home and this data gets going in through the internet um, in the, the enterprise itself in the data center which is shown on the right we have all sorts of different um, applications running we've got uh, multiple databases of various kinds, relational and non-relational. We may have mainframes out there. Um, you've got potentially satellite offices that have possibly replicated data and local data stored there. Replicated data being data that would also be in the data center somewhere. Uh, you've got the back office communicating into that the um, data center as well. And so there's this big mix of all of these different data flows and all of these different data repositories. And well, if this diagram looks complicated, I've actually, it's a gross simplification of what I've seen with a number of my clients who can have just tremendously complicated um, uh, situations with regard to their data. So the perfect situation um, would be let's use production data because 
any really big system, if you try to hand create data, you're just not going to be able to do it. Uh, it won't, you won't be able to create enough of it. And even if you could do that, it's not sufficiently diverse. Now, by sufficiently diverse, what I mean is representing all of the different interesting conditions that exist in actual production data. It's just very difficult for testers to think of those things. Test design techniques can certainly help and uh, should be employed here, but um, simply doing it by hand is not going to be enough. Um, now, there are data generation tools which can be used to create great huge volumes of, of data, which are then be loaded into your databases. Um, but the problem here, again, is that it may not actually look like the production data. Uh, diversity and the different values and the, the um, fields, the distribution of the, of the values in the fields. I mean, just think like, uh, if, if you have, um, income data in, is stored in one particular field. Well, you know, in that case, you know, the, the, the data that you test with, you want that distribution of the incomes, the, the mean, the, uh, standard deviation, the actual spread of them to be a close mimic of production data if you're doing any sort of analysis of income. And it's going to apply to a number of other attributes as well. So, it's just really, really hard when you're dealing with complex production situations to mimic the testing attributes of the production data. So the ideal case really is let's just go grab all the production data um, and we'll use that because it looks like what the system's going to encounter when it gets released. Now, of course, uh, what is going to be released is the next version, not the current version that's in production. And that may cause some changes to the data and some additions to the data. So in that case, you may need to augment the test data with generated data to address those new parts of the application. But that should be something that can be accomplished either by hand or with some data generation tools. Um, so again, you know, you're in a situation where you can put the put in front of the application exactly the data that it will face when it gets into release, uh, which is great, except that there are some challenges that you need to think about. The first of which is privacy concerns. So, you know, last year we had the whole GDPR um, situation and um, that's had really worldwide ramifications, raised a lot of, uh, of awareness about this. Uh, but what you, what you tend to encounter is that production data, uh, will have data in it that is personal data, personal identifying information, health related information, credit card information, those kinds of things. And if so, GDPR and similar kinds of regulations are going to mean that you have to handle that with care. Now, one of the things that you could potentially do is say, well, you know, we have employees, of course, in our company who are authorized to handle that data that's in the database. That's why it's in the database. So we just make sure that we apply the same level of scrutiny to the testers and we'll be able to allow them to uh, um, use that test data. 
in the test environment and 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 uh, just copy production data over there and use it directly. Well, yeah, but no, no, it's not really possible. Um, if you have distributed testing or outsourced testing, that data is going to end up being available, accessible outside of the um, outside of the um, offices of the premises, uh, maybe by people who aren't employees, and that's probably going to make your security people in your company um, really kind of lose their cool. Um, so uh, clients that I've talked to about this, you know, this is, this is frequently what they'll bring up and it's like, yeah, we, we, we'd like to be able to do use production data, but you know, there's just, there's just no way that we'll be allowed to do it because we have these contractors or we have this outsourced testing service provider, some other entity that has access to the, the test lab and test environment and therefore the data. So no, no go. So, um, what you're going to need to deal with this problem is an anonymization tool. And there are, there are a number of them out there. Um, and they, they work. They can, they can be helpful, but they are not magic. Uh, what I mean by not magic is back in the early days of the sort of internet, the first internet boom, back in the, the late nineties, early two thousands, people started to become vaguely aware of the need to have security and they were like, oh, well, we'll get a firewall. And so companies would go out, you know, and they'd buy a firewall and plug it in and they, you know, plug, plug the network cables into it uh, you know, appropriately and then go done. And they wouldn't set it up properly. They wouldn't change the default uh, administrative passwords. This kind of idea that you're just going to go buy some tool or some appliance or something like that and shazam it's going to magically fix a problem for you that's not the way this works you really do have to understand what these anonymization tools are doing and how to use them properly because if you don't use them properly you can create data that is effectively pseudo anonymizes it, it is anonymized but in such a way that it can be very very easy to figure out how to reverse that anonymization so in other words, anybody who gets a hold of a copy of the test data, which was produced by, from the production data and not properly anonymized, will be able to reverse engineer the actual production data. So you have to be aware of that. But another thing you have to also be careful of is that um, the data remains useful from a testing point of view. So in other words, the data meaning and meaningfulness have been preserved uh, through the anonymization process. So let me let me talk a little bit about this meaning and meaningfulness. Um, when we talk about anonymizing the data, um, a lot of it comes down to some form of, of substitution. Um, you're substituting a, a fake value, if you will, for the real value. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, it's important that the fake value, while being fake and not therefore not real, is nonetheless realistic. So notice that the, the, the two translations that I show, one good, one bad, uh, John Brown chain, being changed to Lester Camden in a name field in a table, that's a good substitution. Changing John Brown to Charlotte Dostoevsky, 
not such a good substitution. The reasons being, if they're not obvious, John Brown and Lester Camden are both male. Uh, in the second example, John has been changed to Charlotte, so there's been an inadvertent gender reassignment that's happened there, uh, which you might say, well, you know, what's what's the big deal with that? Well, there may be other data that's uh, associated with this particular record that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if the person is a, uh, f a female rather than male, um, especially if you're trying to test data analytics, like maybe you're interested in, you know, show me the purchases made by all women between the ages of 18 and uh, 38 that purchased uh, XYZ, some, you know, um, uh, women's uh, dress types or something like that. Well, you know, if, if now we have Charlotte is actually John Brown, right? Well, what did John Brown purchase? Maybe he purchased dresses, and if so, that's fine for him, but that's not fairly typical. So, you know, you're likely to, to have damaged the meaning and meaningfulness of, of the data with that change. So even more obscure things can happen, like let's say that we want to think about uh, uh, country of origin, right? And John Brown, uh, Brown is is sort of a typical Western European name, whereas Dostoevsky, of course, is famously a Eastern European name. Um, and so if we were doing something that had any sort of connection with genealogy in our data, then the Dostoyev Brown to Dostoevsky name change itself would be uh, potentially problematic. So this is the kind of thing I'm talking about, that these, these substitutions all have to be done in a way that is, that is thought through. Um, you want to make sure that after the, the anonymization has happened, if you ran a query, if you have a defined database view, if you do a join across multiple tables um, based on some sort of, uh, of key field that's common across the tables, the anonymized data should give you the same results as the production data. Now, when I say same, of course, I don't mean that it's it same and like shows the personal identifying information. But what I mean is if a query results in 600 uh, records coming back against the anonymized test data, then that also should result in 600 records coming back against the production data. And each of those records, there should be a one-to-one -one correspondence between each of those 600 records. And while the personal identifying information in each of those 600 records is changed and not, not real, the uh, meaning and meaningfulness of the data in each one of those 600 records and across all 600 of those records remains the same. If you don't have that property, of, of the substitution being done in such a way that those queries, views, and joins yield the same results, that will affect your functional testing. It will also affect your performance and reliability testing because the size of the data sets being manipulated by queries and so forth, queries, views, and joins, obviously has some significant influence on performance and reliability. So, it could it create problems if the anonymized data returns uh, too much data on a query, but it can also create a false sense of confidence if it uh, returns too little. 
Now, also, there can there can be issues with localization testing depending on how the anonymization is done as well. So if the anonymization is done in such a way that um, the names are not correct, say, uh, they're not representative, like, oh, for example, um, O'Reardon uh, being a, a, a potential name for someone from Ireland, um, you know, if, if no names with a high high apostrophe in the uh, last name are generated when the anonymization occurs, well, you know, now if you were to try to run a test and make sure that names with apostrophes in them work properly, well, you wouldn't know. Now, of course, you know, that's kind of a trivial example, but obviously there's a number of uh, character set issues that could come up as an issue, as a problem um, that you, you miss effectively creating false negatives in your tests uh, because the test data wasn't uh, uh, sufficiently diverse with respect to character sets. And I want to point out that this is not just something within a single uh, database. Um, we can have data and data that has relationships that span multiple databases. So the, the example given here that maybe we have three applications that have accumulated data over the years in, say, a bank, right? Uh, now, the bank's customers, maybe a common pool of customers, right? But for reasons of history, there were diff different databases used in this bank to accumulate uh, information about these customers. But eventually, you may decide that you want the applications to interoperate and share data. Well, when we test the interoperability, we need to make sure that when we anonymize the data, if we have a uh, Lester Camden, John Brown becomes Lester Camden in one database, then John Brown has to become Lester Camden in all three databases. So that when we do a query that spans multiple databases and we look for records that have to do with, with uh, Lester Camden, former John Brown, we get exactly the, the right result, exactly the same result that we would get if we ran the, the same join across the uh, those tables in production looking for John Brown. This is certainly true for data warehousing and various data analytics applications, um, as well as just the interoperability of the applications themselves. And what you're doing is, is a de facto join across these different tables um, using de facto foreign keys, except that uh, you won't have the same kind of integrity constraints keeping you from breaking those uh, links that you would have with a relational database. And one of the things a relational database will stop you from doing is making a change that breaks the relationship between tables, at least when that relationship has been um, defined, hence, hence the name relational database. But when the data is in separate databases, then those integrity constraints aren't there as sort of guardrails to keep you from, from driving off the cliff. So if those integrity constraints are broken across the multiple uh, repositories, not, not in any one repository notice, but across the multiple repositories, then any sort of end-to-end -end test uh, across the, spanning these, these interoperating uh, applications 
functional tests, performance tests, throughput tests, reliability tests, localization tests, security tests, any kind of test really is going to be completely impossible. And this is one of the things that pops up with a number of our clients is that, you know, where they're trying to do interoperability testing across multiple uh, applications that, that now need to interact. Uh, it's difficult to craft test data that spans those applications in their databases in such a way that you can test that meaningfully. So that's a problem that you have to figure out and, and solve. So let's think a little bit about what our requirements are um, in terms of this uh, test data. Now, you're going to have specific requirements, and you're going, you are going to need to identify those requirements and um, uh, come up with a solution accordingly. But some generic things that, that can be said about test data regardless, um, you do need to keep the existing data quality levels. Now, this is something that not everybody is aware of, but uh, if you look at production data, what you will find, and I've seen a few studies on this, is that there's a fairly significant percentage of uh, errors, or, or if you prefer, defects in that data. Uh, I've seen a couple studies, as I said, both of them cited the same number, which is about 25% of records will have some sort of error or defect in it. Um, so you need to figure out, well, you know, what is that, th that defect rate in our production data? Um, we need to make sure that in your test data, you've got that as well, because, you know, if that's not in there, you make a change to the application and when it reads that defective data, it would actually fail. But because you don't have that defective data in your test data, you miss it. And it goes out into production and then it fails, well, that could be a problem, especially if it fails in a, in a silent way. So I had a client that had this happen to them where they, they went, put it, put a change into production and, um, and they had, they missed a, a major regression that, um, it caused, which was that, uh, this is an insurance application. And, and what happened was that, um, when the, when the billing function in the insurance application read a particular value out of a particular field in, in a particular table, which had just recently been added, that, that value had recently been added to that as a possible value in that table. When the billing application read that, it would uh, fail, but it would fail silently. So it wouldn't give an error message. It just stopped and, and, uh, ended production of the bill for that particular customer and worked on moved on to the next customer this defect cost my client this insurance company millions of dollars in lost revenue over the six months from the time that the defect uh, the defective release went into production and the time they actually found it um, now another thing you want to think of in terms of your test data is maintainability um, it's easy to lose sight of this when you're focused on creating the data, but over time, you are going to want to be able to do things like edit the data, add to it, update it in various ways, delete things from it down to the individual field level and uh, individual records, uh, be able to work on the entire databases and working on 
logical records that span databases, as I explained on the previous slide. If you don't think about this in advance, it is possible for you to create a situation where doing this maintainability is going to be very painful. Um, you might say, well, why should we worry about it? We'll just set up the tool that does the anonymization so that it can anonymize the data for us quite quickly, and um, we'll just copy it over again. Well, it, it generally is not that easy to have it be quick. It may or may not be quick. And as for copying it over again, I'll show you in a few slides why that's a bad idea. For the moment, just take my word for it that if you, you're going to want to think about the maintainability of this test data after it's been produced. <coughs> Excuse me. Just overall, you, you, you need to make sure that the process, not just of acquiring the data, but updating it, uh, will both be efficient. Uh, this is, and make, make no mistake, this is overhead. This genera, genera, generation and management of this test data is an overhead. And um, y you're going to, you, you don't want to have this be a big drain on your uh, testing effort. I, I had a client tell me once that they, uh, they used anonymized production data for testing. Um, and uh, I asked him, well, how, how frequently does it get sort of resynchronized or refreshed with respect to production? They said every 18 months. I said 18 months, really that long? She said, oh yeah, this is a big deal. This takes us a couple weeks from, from start to finish. And I said, well, you can't, you, you can't like edit it or keep it up to date. She said, no, not, not, not really. It's, it's really difficult to do that because the only facilities we have to change the data and edit the data effectively are, are within the applications under test themselves. And we don't necessarily know exactly how to do that. Um, so yeah, efficiency, efficiency is important here, both in the initial acquisition and in the updates. And then um, another thing to keep in mind is that when uh, when you're copying the production data or when you're anonymizing the production data, you need to make sure that the data is what's referred to in database terms as quiescent, meaning it's not changing. Um, if records are being inserted, uh, deleted, updated um, while you are copying them, then this is likely to be a uh, problem in your uh, in, in the, the state of the data that you ultimately capture. Apologies for the ringing phone in the background there. I'm going to try to make that go away here. I uh, see the do not disturb button does not exactly work. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, so regardless of the specific test data requirements that you have, um, make sure that you uh, think about these generic test data requirements as well. Now, you need to think about the database server and what it will cost. Um, if you are going to have production scale test data, then you're going to need a production scale database server and it could potentially be licensing costs depending on the database management system that's being used. Server itself, it's not free. Now, of course, hardware is getting cheaper and cheaper, but servers, you know, not always cheap. Um, 
Disk space, again, getting cheaper and cheaper, but still when you're talking about huge amounts of data, you know, cheap is not the same as free. Um, you need to think about maintaining the hardware and the software over time. And again, that's, you know, not necessarily an enormous cost depending on what you got, but it's not free. And, you know, servers, servers die. We had a server die here in our offices about two years ago. And, you know, so that happens. So you want to make sure that you back them up and you're able to restore them. And again, you know, this is not, not huge, not huge amounts of effort, but, um, it's not, um, um, it's not trivial. It's not non-existent. And you might say, well, we don't have to worry about this because we have an open source uh, database management system. Okay. Well, that, that deals with your database management system costs, but how about all the other stuff? Again, these don't necessarily have to be huge costs, but they're, you know, it's, it's friction. It's, it's, you know, it, it nibbles at the efficiency. So you do have to plan on, on these costs and figure out, okay, how is this in the budget? Now, again, you know, disk space is not the most expensive stuff in the world, but storage virtualization is something that might be able to help you reduce some of the costs uh, if you're dealing with, with enormous amounts of um, data to be, to be stored. Um, it also helps deal with some issues of speed. So um, I don't want to get off into a whole tangent of what storage virtualization is. It is something that does tend to be underutilized by uh, testing groups around the world. But basically, storage virtualization is going to allow you to uh, only um, copy over the data that you've actually uh, change that's actually different. Um, so there are some tools out there that can help with this. And as I said, they, they tend to be underutilized, underutilized by testing groups. So it's something that uh, you, you should look out for. Now, I mentioned this, you know, co copying a bunch of production data, you know, it may take a while. Um, this is a analysis that shows the trends over a 30 year period. Yeah. 30 year period, um, of capacity and throughput. Okay. Um, a ink growth in, in both of those. Um, it's on a logarithmic scale. So keep that in mind. So each point on the scale is a 10 X, uh, increase, right? Each line is a 10 X increase. So if we take 1979, looking there at the Seagate ST506 drive as, as the baseline of one, and then we start doing comparisons over time, what we see, the, the blue line capacity has increased enormously, right? 82,000 times increase um, over that. Uh, 30 year period. But throughput, the, the rate at which the thing can send or receive data is only increased 72 times, less than a thousandth of the increase in capacity. So what happens then is if we need to move enormous amounts of data all at once, which is what would happen if we were copying 
anonymizing, otherwise managing test data from production, then if it's production size, then that could be a really, really long uh, time to copy it all. So something we don't tend to think about as much because, you know, when, when you're copying something relatively small, it does seem to be almost instantaneous, especially when you compare it to like, oh, say, downloading something off the internet where you can actually see the effects of, of slower throughput. But, you know, when you are talking about terabytes and terabytes of data, even over very fast um, channels, um, you're, you're, you know, this is going to catch up to you. The fact that there is so much more capacity than there is throughput is going to be an issue. Now, um, I mentioned that there are tools. So depending on the applications you're using, you, you may be able to find tools that actually support your specific application in your enterprise. Uh, but the obscure kinds of applications or ones that are more, say, legacy type of applications or homegrown applications may not have any tools available uh, to help. Um, now, it may be that, that just generic tools, if you're dealing with generic data and generic uh, relational databases, generic tools will, will help, but maybe not. Um, depending on the format, of your data, if it's a non-relational database, you know, there could be challenges associated with that. Um, now you might say, well, I'll go to my application vendor and I'll ask them what the, the data structures are in their, their databases and we'll, we'll figure out how to anonymize it based on that. And the application vendor may say, hey man, that's not in our contract to tell you that. That's information you could use to reverse engineer our application we just won't tell you. Now, you now all of this questions about how you are going to produce meaningful test data from production data really ought to be addressed when the applications are being selected. But in my experience, that doesn't happen. Um, and once a decision is made to go with a particular application in, 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 in an enterprise, the, the, um, barriers to exit, the cost of changing to a different application are enormous. And so you, you may find yourself just kind of stuck um, and, and doing the best you can. So um, <clears throat> I've done whole webinars on this issue of successfully selecting uh, test tools and test data tools are, are no exception. I'll probably repeat that webinar at some time in the future because it was fairly popular. But uh, just to, to summarize this, just remember, you know, you want to have a team in place um, to, to do this tool selection. It should not just be a one-man job or one-woman job. You want to make sure that you identify all the users and stakeholders for the tool and elicit the requirements from them. Uh, this is a part of the process that is very often skipped with disastrous results. Uh, Identify any risks and constraints that exist with respect to, to what you're doing. You know, the obvious one is going to be divulging personal identifying information, getting yourself crossways with a regulation like GDPR or HIPAA or something like that. But 
there are going to be other ones. And of course, there are constraints. You may have to have things done by a particular time, you may have uh, tight limits on your budget. So, you know, know those before you start uh, planning. Um, <clears throat> figure out what your tool options are only once you've identified your requirements, risks, and constraints. If you start looking at the tools too soon, those that's going to anchor what you're thinking about what you, what you what you believe you need and you want to try to um, to avoid that um, but once you do know your risk requirements and constraints that's the point we'll go out to the internet go to conferences uh, start talking to people don't make any decisions go through an evaluation process make sure that the vendors can demonstrate to you that they can meet all your requirements. Check that they'll be within your constraints. Check that they're, they're not, that the use of that particular vendor is not going to exacerbate any of your risks. At that point, you can do a short list. If you're making a significant purchase, you ought to be able to get the vendors to come in and do an actual demo against your data. Not, don't use our canned data because that will work. Canned data doesn't tell you in, or the canned demo doesn't tell you anything. You want the, you want to make sure that they do the demo on your actual uh, data. Once you've done that, you can select the tool uh, and then be careful to do a pilot. This rolling out the tool to everybody all at once thing, you know, generally speaking, when I see that happen, it's a it's a big disaster. Um, so you pilot, you learn from the pilot, you make some adjustments, and then what you do is you gradually deploy the tool. And, and, and gradual is important. You got to roll it out in a in a in a uh, incremental kind of fashion because otherwise you you'll uh, have problems with uh, uh, support for it. So be careful about shortcutting on this process or trying to do something on the cheap because um, I can in and and I can and do in the longer webinar spin out uh, scenarios of tool test tool failure associated with not being specifically uh, uh, attentive to each of the bullets on that bullet list. All right, so just to recap here, uh, hopefully this uh, presentation has made you aware that the testing enterprise applications does pose a lot of challenges that uh, are unique just because of scale and size. Um, and uh, a lot of those challenges arise from test data, as we've seen. Uh, you need to think about where you're going to get the data, how you preserve uh, privacy, uh, what kind of tools you're going to uh, need, um, how much data you're dealing with, what kind of cost issues are associated and with, with managing the test data and also how to preserve the usefulness of the testing data. Again, the meaning and meaningfulness of the test data after you've created it. So understand your challenges and plan for addressing those. Don't just rush into this. Um, I mean, all too often run into people like, oh yeah, well, we have this tool. I'll say, well, how did you get the tool? Well, we went to this conference and, yeah, okay, well, maybe maybe you got lucky and that worked, um, but, you know, often cases that's not a, a route to success. So um, there's more to this than just tools and um, selecting the right tool and, and uh, being 
um, smart about how you how you get it rolled out to everybody is is key. So, as I said, I hope this has been an eye-opening presentation for you. Um, get you thinking about how you would actually plan to better manage your uh, test data. All right. So, as usual, I will uh, put up the advertisement as we go into Q&A uh, period here. Uh, first, quick word about our services. As I mentioned earlier, we have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. If you receive valuable information from our free webinars, please help us continue to provide them by making RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. We're happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need. Contact us at info at rbcs-us.com. All right, let's see what we got here question-wise. Um, a comment from uh, Raghu saying that he lost audio. So every five to ten minutes. Um, but he's the only person that I got that comment from, which means usually, Raghu, uh, that what was happening was your internet connection was getting really slow or actually dropping off. Um, because generally, if if I have a problem, um, well, let me back up a little bit. It, um, GoToWebinar uses a hub and spoke type of um, architecture. Um, so there's a, there's a central server. If my connection to that central server is is uh, constricted or lost, then everybody's audio and everybody's everybody's feed of the video slide advances goes away. You just you would stop hearing me, and uh, that that would pretty much be that if it didn't pick up fairly quickly. If it's only affecting one person, then that basically means that their their spoke broke, right? As opposed to my spoke having broke. If that makes sense. Now, I, looks like looking at the attendee list. Ah, uh, yeah, Raghu is there, so hopefully he heard that. With Mur Murphy's Law would say that. I just gave that explanation during one of Raghu's intermittent, unable to hear the audio <laughs> problems. <laughs> sort of the way bugs work. Stefano says that audio is okay for him all the time. So that means to me that both I and Stefano had a solid internet connection the whole time. And let's see. Um, Stefano says, in my daily scenario, it's even more complex than you described as our real test data are our customers' data, um, our system being a network management system used by telecommunications operators. Woof. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if it, <laughs> yes, much more potentially complicated. If you, if, if, if you're building software that is used by, um, other companies to manage data in their data centers, you have a really big challenge here because in order to test with production data, you would actually, it, true production data, you would have to go and get the production data from all of your customers. And the odds that they would all agree to that is, 
you know, I hesitate to say zero because somebody's going to pipe up and say, no, 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 we do that all the time, but it's pretty low. Um, and one of the ways that I've had clients to try to deal with this is, is through beta testing. They, they just can't, can't possibly get representative data sets from all of their customers. So they try to go out to their customers and they think you're going to have particularly complex data and have them do a beta test to try to, to deal with some of this. Um, but that leaves you in a, in a really difficult spot because there's some pretty big testing blind spots that, um, you're not going to be able to address until you get into beta test. And then, and you know, if there's some significant performance issues, say performance or reliability issues associated with some design decisions that were made, you know, you may not see those until you get out into the beta test. And that's a really bad time to run into those kinds of problems. Let's see what else we got. We got a, a comment or question from uh, comment from Donald. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Donald says production data concern. It may be inadequate. For example, one client's data may be VAT environment or localization or VAT VAT. Another may be sales uh, multi-tax in different locations. So the app may need to support all. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're getting back to Stefano's point here, Donald, which is that um, if if the application is used in a number of different settings, um, and you, you you may not have access to the data from all those settings, that that's that's going to create a problem. Um, so you know, in in this case, you're just going to have to try to create um, a sort of uh, hyper diverse, I guess you could say, data set that somehow or another kind of sort of adequately represents all of the different production data that's out there. Again, that you know, the likelihood that you could get your customer's production data, anonymize it, and then blend it all together, um, you know, A, that's likely to be completely impossible because customers won't agree to it. And B, if you did that, well, guess what? Now you'd have data that was unrealistic sort of to the other side in the sense that it's considerably more diverse than anything that your application is actually going to have to deal with in production. And it's, of course, going to be much, much larger because let's say, if, let's say you've got, you know, just 10 customers. Well, then you've got 10 times the amount of data that any one customer is going to be working with, um, potentially, you know, assuming all the customers are equal in data size. So that's not a good fix by itself. Um, so yes, um, totally agree, Donald. It's a, it's a very complex uh, scenario. I've got a comment here from Travis who says, not a question, but something that I've encountered implementing test data management at the enterprise level. Before purchasing a test data management tool, ensure that there is adequate skill. Um, there is an adequate skill set to support the ongoing use of the tool after the vendor has finished installation. <laughs> if there are not dedicated programming and database administrator level staff to support the tool, it will not be successful in the long run. Yep. 
Yeah, that's again, like I was saying at the outset, you know, these tools are not magic by themselves. You know, it's not like, yay, we've got the tool and, you know, all of our problems are solved. The tool has to be used. And um, as Travis very wisely points out, it, it is not a trivial matter to use these tools. Um, Stefano has another comment here about the um, copying of the data, that, that slide that I showed of uh, uh, increase in capacity versus increase in throughput. Uh, Stefano says, good point, Rex. No matter if the real data are copied into the database or of the test environment or simulated data, if you need to fill up a database with some tens of terabytes, that will take hours. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Thank you for making that point, Stefano. The, the issue of the populating your test data databases with enormous amounts of data. Uh, if I, if I made it sound like that's only an issue associated with anonymized production data, that's not the case. Uh, even if you were using a test data generation tool to generate terabytes of data and then bulk load those terabytes of data into a database, you know, that's going to take time. Um, so, you know, this is, it's, it is time consuming. And this is why, again, to reinforce the point that I made earlier, don't just think about the efficiency of acquisition of the test data. You, think you need to also think about efficiency of maintenance of the test data over time. Ah, <laughs> here's a good one. Donald has another, he says, production data concern number two. Production data can be seen as a panacea. The data flaws won't be uncovered if the test that discovers them is not performed. Excellent point, yes. So to go back to the anecdote I shared about my expert witness engagement in 2017, there were two parts to how the defendant missed the failure and thus released the defective code into production. One part was not having properly anonymized production data in their test data. What they had done was called redaction. Redaction is basically they just went in and deleted, removed from the test data any personal identifying information. And what what happens what happened when they did that was that certain um, logical records that would be created after a join across tables didn't happen because the data that was deleted was the data that was being used as a foreign key to do the join. So instead of getting back a bunch of records associated with a individual, you get back in the test environment, you get back a single record or no record. Well, <clears throat> yes, if they'd run it against that, if they had used properly anonymized production data, they could have found the defect. But Donald's point is right on. They would still have had to design and run a test to look for that, that defect. What I found in my work with evaluating all of the evidence that I was given was not only did they not have the test data, but they also didn't design and run the test. So that they were basically, um, you know, unable to find the defect for multiple reasons. But had they run the right tests, 
they still would perhaps not have found the defect because they didn't have the correct data present. I uh, got a um, got a comment from Lena here. She says, I work with an application that monitors radio trunking system. Customer data and the specs manual really helps us to create tests that simulate uh, radio activity. Um, huh. Yeah, I can I can see that as being um, as being challenging. Um, I have I have a client that does um, systems that do um, uh, mobile phone billing and tracking usage of data and calls and so forth and uh yeah it's um they have a lot of challenges associated with test data management um in addition to the fact that the the application that they build is is sold to um uh mobile phone operators around the world you know so they have that that same diversity of the customer data sets problem that, that uh, donald and stefano brought up Okay, great. Well, um, thank you all for your uh, questions. Um, to close this session, just please remember that we do run these free webinar sessions once a month. We're still finalizing the 2019 schedule, but hope to have that done, finalized um, in the next um, a few weeks. We are going to continue to do the um, uh, full-length webinars like this and, and also the one key idea, the 20-minute uh, webinars. Um, we're sort of rethinking the two points of view at two. I'm open to continuing to do those, but I'd need to have some, some, um, suggestions about people to talk to and be able to get their time. So we, we may or may not do those, uh, right away. It may take a while to bring those back. Um, uh, you know, let us know if you like them too. I mean, if you like, if you like the two points of view at two, uh, let us know because if, or, or let us know that you didn't. Because we are kind of rethinking what we want to do with that, if anything. And if you've got another suggestion, then, you know, like more collaborative webinars with partners, those sort of things, um, uh, we're open to that. Uh, so go to our website, uh, www.rbcs-us.com, and you can um, sign up for the free webinar, sign up for our uh, newsletter, uh, which will keep you posted on what we're up to, and also... Uh, to valuable uh, discounts on consulting and training services. Um, you can follow uh, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, the coordinates that you see uh, below. I'm pretty active on those. I do probably three or four posts a week, sometimes more, um, to include video clips and so forth. So uh, you know, uh, feel free to connect with us there. If, send me a, a connection request on LinkedIn, and I will accept it. Um, uh, current and previous recorded webinars are posted regularly, so do watch for those on our social media. Um, so we've got a lot of a lot of ways to uh, keep in touch with us, um, and uh, we offer all of these free resources uh, as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just for profit company. But don't forget, we also need to keep the lights on. So please, please, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. 2019 is off to a great start from a business point of view. Uh, we're looking to keep up the momentum. So it would be great to hear from you on, on ways that uh, we can work with you in 2019. 
Uh, this concludes the webinar. Thanks to everyone for uh, joining us today, and I look forward to seeing you on future webinars.